Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, why Justin Trudeau's vaccine mandate is an exercise of control rather than public health, plus the countdown to Alberta's equalization referendum. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Hello and welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. It is Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Great to have you aboard the Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. And what is happening right now is that Justin Trudeau has finally decided to make good on his election promise to make vaccination the requirement if you want to keep your job in the federal public service. It's also a requirement if you want to take a plane or a train. Not an automobile just yet, but give it time. Justin Trudeau yesterday gave his long-awaited announcement that if you are working for the federal government in any way, shape, or form, whether you are working in an embassy abroad or working in an office in downtown Ottawa, you have to get vaccinated if you want to keep your job. There's a catch, though. Even if you are working from home, if you are working remotely, if you are literally zooming into the office, you have to be vaccinated under Justin Trudeau's federal public service vaccination edict, which means if you are like I'm doing here, you're holed up in a basement office, you're not interacting with any people around the world, you emerge for oxygen every couple hours, maybe get a coffee, then go back down into your little hidey hole, you need to be vaccinated if you want to work for the federal government. So unless the new or Omicron or Kappa Alpha Theta variant, whichever one we're on, is transmitted through Zoom, there is zero public health basis for this. But nevertheless, the government has decided to make this a requirement of your employment. Now, here's the problem with this. There are many of them. But the big one is that it reveals what we've known for quite some time, which is that these mandates are not at all about public health. They are about control. Because under the government's stated premises, you could make an argument that having employees congregating in an office poses a risk if not all of them are vaccinated. I don't agree with that position, but you could understand the logic of that argument. You can't understand the logic because there is none of forcing people that aren't even working in an office, that aren't even engaging or interacting with their employees to be vaccinated because, well, they're not going to pose a risk to anyone. So what the government is doing is trying to mandate vaccination because what Justin Trudeau wants to do is make vaccination mandatory for anyone and everyone in Canadian society. He can't do that. There's no way to legally do that. So the next best thing is come up with as broad and sweeping a policy as possible that covers the greatest number of people as possible and force those who could be compelled to do something by the government to do it. This is not about protecting the public sector. This is not about protecting government offices. This isn't even about protecting airplanes and trains. This is about finding the broadest policy possible to compel vaccination on the largest segment of the general population possible. That is entirely what the federal government is doing here. You can't get on a plane to see your grandma in Kelowna if you're not vaccinated. You can't take a train back and forth between home and school in, oh, I don't know, Windsor and Toronto if you're unvaccinated. You can't work in a government office. You can't even be a janitor at 2 a.m. in an Ottawa government office building right now unless you are vaccinated. And the federal public sector we know has been growing and growing. Millions of people are caught up in this, especially because they've extended it to contractors. 
doesn't matter if you're in an embassy in Kazakhstan or if you're in an office building in Tunney's Pasture or if you're zooming into the office from home, you have to be vaccinated. Now, here's what I would like to see come of this. I would like to see the union raise a stink and challenge this and say, well, hang on, you're, you're putting forward a sweeping measure that suspends our civil liberties and those of our employees when there's no connection to public health. And in a way, I'm actually grateful. I'm actually grateful that the government decided to make this mandatory for remote employees because doing so gives us the evidence of what we've been able to kind of surmise up until this point that they are more interested in control than public health. They they took it one step too far. So there's no way they can defend what they're doing. That doesn't mean they'll have to. We're going to be doing a deep dive in a soon-to-be-released show about the civil liberties implications of this and similar policies. And, and sadly, courts have not been siding with individual liberties and individual choice insofar as vaccination is concerned. But I do think that the government has overplayed its hand here. Because one of the whole hallmarks of this regime of balancing rights and freedoms, as though such a thing is supposed to happen in a normal society, is that the government has to prove that any infringement of freedoms is justified and that you provide accommodation wherever possible. This is especially true in labor issues. So if someone can be reasonably accommodated by working from home, then there's no justification to force them to be vaccinated. So that's a reasonable accommodation. If someone's able to work from home, let them continue doing it. But Justin Trudeau is not interested in that. It's not a reasonable policy. And I'd say it's not intended to be a serious policy in as much as it's not about the stated purpose. You have to scratch beneath the surface here to figure out what they're actually trying to do. And that is about enacting control. Justin Trudeau said during the election campaign that, oh, well, you know, it's, it's not, you of course have a choice. No one can make you get vaccinated, but you don't have a choice to be unvaccinated and get on a plane. You don't have a choice to be unvaccinated and go to work. Really? I'm pretty sure employment is one of the most fundamental things that you as an individual in a society like Canada should be allowed to pursue. So now that your job is contingent on this thing, it's not a choice. If you have to choose between getting vaccinated to keep your job or keeping your principles, assuming you have a principled objection to vaccination, and losing your job, that that is not a legitimate choice. Any more than, oh, I don't know, choosing top bunk or bottom bunk, bunk in a prison cell is about enacting a choice on your living arrangements. Yeah, you're choosing between very narrowly selected options that the government has given to you, so narrow that they don't even really qualify as options. They don't qualify as choices. So this is not about choice, and don't let Justin Trudeau's narrative and rhetoric on this convince you otherwise. This is an issue of government mandating vaccination. Just because it's not Justin Trudeau or Patty Haidu or Theresa Tam showing up on your front doorstep and shoving a needle in your arm without your consent, it is still something that takes away your choice and your right as an individual to choose. And in my opposition to this, yesterday I I put out a tweet in which I pointed out the absurdity, the, the absolute absurdity of extending this to remote employees. And I had people with the predictable retorts of, oh, you're being anti-vax. No, supporting choice is not being anti-vaccination. I chose as an individual to get vaccinated at a time before I was forced to for any particular reason, like flying or something else. And I encourage others to choose the things that are right for them. 
But it is important that these decisions remain choices. Otherwise, as a society, we go down a road from which there is no returning of completely abdicating our ability as individuals to decide what goes into our body, decide what medical treatments we take, and more importantly, to wall off aspects of society. This idea of vaccine segregation, of vaccine stratification, is a very real thing. And I would point out here that there is no protection for workers no protection for workers. Justin Trudeau said that the uh, questions about exemptions, religious or for medical reasons, will be very narrow, in his words, onerous. So they basically don't want you to be able to get an exemption for anything. And if you lose your job or are placed on unpaid leave, if you lose your job or are placed on unpaid leave because of this, you are not even going to be eligible for EI benefits. So if the government fires you because you wouldn't get the jab, this EI system that you've paid into will not cover you. And this means that the government is treating it as a with cause dismissal, I suspect. And again, this is speculation from what they've said, but the government is treating this as a with cause dismissal, meaning it's like you stole from your company or you, I don't know, punched someone in the lunchroom or something. So this would go on your record of employment as being with cause, not a layoff. So that means no EI benefits, and it very much damages your ability to get another job in the future. So Trudeau bragged that these measures are, in his words, quote, the strongest in the world, unquote. Now, limiting freedom more than any other country seems like a very weird thing to be proud of, but I don't know, Canada's back, I suppose. And and interestingly enough, and I, I don't even want to give them ideas here, But for these measures that he claims are the strongest in the world, it's worth noting that you don't even need to provide your proof of vaccination. You can just sign an attestation saying you're vaccinated. So this strongest in the world regime is really just theatrical. It's window dressing. You can get out of your obligation by just saying I'm vaccinated, although the government was clear to do a bit of a finger wagging and saying if we learn that you've lied about it, then you can be disciplined for lying because that's a, a disciplinary offense as well. So they're trying to just create this world in which the only way you can keep your job is to be vaccinated. And at the same time, they aren't even living up to the severity they say is there. But again, I, I, I'm nervous about taking on that line of thinking here, that argument, because I don't want them to make this more strict. I don't want them to do more on this. I'm just pointing out the absurdity of what they say they're doing and, and what they actually seem to be doing here. I have to point out, though, the part that makes me rather upset about this because Justin Trudeau took several weeks to put this mandate into place. He campaigned on this. He could have put this into place a month ago. He could have signed an executive order or an order in council that made this the case weeks ago during the election, leading up to the election. This is not a new thing. He chose to campaign on it. So this thing that I say is a gross violation of civil liberties, which it is, was also and is a winning political proposition for Justin Trudeau. And, I mean, there's a lot about the country that this makes me quite sad about, if I'm being perfectly candid with you, because Justin Trudeau ran on this. This is not out of left field. Normally, such a severe and extreme measure would be the kind of thing that would be a last resort, but he was quite proud of this. He, he was actually scoring political points off of Aaron O'Toole by saying, why isn't Aaron O'Toole making vaccination mandatory? He, he was like, there's this thing on Reddit called, am I the asshole? 
where people will tell stories about some conflict they've had with another person, and then they ask Reddit, am I the asshole? And basically the implication is, okay, someone screwed up here. Am I the one in the wrong, or is the other person in the story? Justin Trudeau has managed to, with his shamelessness, take his position on mandating vaccines and turn it around to Aaron O'Toole and be like, no, 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 he, he's the asshole. He, he doesn't want you to be forced into being vaccinated. He, this guy thinks you should have a choice. What, what's wrong with him? And Canadians went along with it. I've talked to numerous people that have done informal and, and in some cases formal polls and surveys on this. And what they found is that Canadians, by and large, welcome being forced to do things, especially insofar as the pandemic is concerned. So rather than celebrating your choice as an individual, Canadians want to be forced into it. And with vaccination, I don't think there's anything irreconcilable about being pro-vaccination and being pro-vaccination choice. I think people can celebrate choosing to get vaccinated if that's what they want. They can celebrate choosing to go to a restaurant that requires vaccination or choosing to go to one that doesn't. But instead, we appeal as a country to the lowest common denominator of people that want to control others, people that want to shut down others' right to dissent, people that want to close off other people from being able to make these decisions for themselves. And in doing so, what we've become is a country that has no valuing of independence, no valuing of individual freedom. And this is exactly why these things need to be defended. I said on the show last week, or it might have been earlier this week, that if you don't stand up now, you'll never get a chance to down the road. And I, I very much stand by that. Because a lot of these things have come incrementally. At the beginning of the pandemic, when the lockdown first happened, back in our first two weeks to flatten the curve or whatever it was, we were told that, okay, we just have to do this to get through the next couple of weeks. And, you know, we, we were told, yeah, you know, everyone's got to be a bit of a give and take. Restaurants can deal with a couple of weeks. It's going to be tough, but we can do it. And then when reopening started to happen, a lot of people became very comfortable with government being the one to make this choice. I remember there were restaurants in Toronto that were angry before Ontario had a vaccine passport. Restaurants that were angry that Doug Ford wasn't mandating vaccination for restaurants. And I, I was saying, well, why aren't you just putting a policy forward? I, I wouldn't support that policy, but I know you'd have lots of customers that would, people that would feel safer going to a restaurant that was requiring vaccination. Why did they want the government to make the call for them? People have forgotten what it means to make choices for themselves because government has made itself the chief choice maker in individual people's lives for much of the last two years. And that is a, a very dangerous place to be in in a free society. And I mean, interestingly enough, a lot of people have, be very, have very distorted views of what rights and freedoms are. I just looking at one example here. I, I've seen a lot of discussion, and again, this is semantics to a point, but I'm curious what you think about it. You know, feel free to send me an email. People will say they have a right to feel safe, and I've seen this a lot, and I saw this in a lot of the discourse yesterday. If people are going to be on a plane or on a train, they have a right to feel safe. Now, there is no such right to feel safe. You don't have a right to feel safe. You have a right to be safe. You have a right to not be threatened, to not have your life threatened by other people. But this idea of feeling safe is very subjective. 
Some people might not feel safe walking or riding their bike on the side of a road. Some people might not feel safe driving down a road that doesn't have a median. Some people not, might not feel safe driving at night. Some people might not feel safe climbing a ladder. There are lots of things that you may do or not do because you feel safe or feel unsafe. But you don't have a right to have your feelings about certain situations trump other people's right to do things. And again, I, I'm nervous about going down the road of semantics because for some people, they genuinely do believe that this is an existential threat to their lives. If they go outside and they're around unvaccinated people that, you know, they're going to drop dead or something like that. And I don't like that people feel so anxious and afraid of engaging in the world. But when push comes to shove, when we have to reconcile two people's conflicting beliefs, I was on a panel on Saturday in uh, Calgary, Alberta, the Canada Strong and Free Conference, and I was talking about this with Bruce Party, who's a fantastic civil liberties loyal lawyer, and Jonathan Kay, who's a, a fantastic advocate for free speech, but on vaccine passports, he's all for them. And Jonathan Kay mentioned something about having been at this Blue Jays game, which I, I'm told is baseball, in Toronto, and 30,000 people were there, and he said that he liked knowing that everyone around him was vaccinated. That made him feel good. Okay, that's fine. Now, if the Blue Jays company had a, is a Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment, I don't know. Sports are not sports are not my forte, as we say. But if the Maple Leaf Sports Entertainment had come up with a policy that said you have to be vaccinated, okay, sure. Then people like Jonathan Kay can decide for themselves whether they're comfortable. When government does it, you don't have the right as an individual to assess your own risk level to assess your own tolerance for risk, your own threshold for risk, and decide accordingly. And this is a big problem. As a society, we are not about risk aversion mandated by state. People can decide, yeah, I'm going to go whitewater rafting. Yeah, I'm going to go on that Arctic expedition. Yeah, I'm going to take up shooting as a hobby. Yeah, I'm going to do crocheting instead. You, you do have a right to make these choices. So, but by government getting license to lower everyone's risk threshold, the natural extension of this, the logical extension of this, is government taking over a lot of other aspects of our lives under the same criteria, which is to mitigate risk. And not only to mitigate risk, but to force a mitigation of risk onto people that might have a risk tolerance level. I mean, look, I, I'm not a bar person. I don't feel the need to go out dancing and drinking at a nightclub, but doing so is an activity that carries risk. You're drinking, you're out, you're among strangers, you don't know what's going to happen. People decide for themselves whether they're interested in doing that. People should decide for themselves. But when government takes it over, it enacts control. And that is what it's about more than public health. Because at a certain point, the line between the government measure and the stated purpose of it, and then further to that, the actual effect of it, these connections get blurrier and blurrier. And it's in doing so that government starts to become the sole decision maker of all the things that matter, of things that used to be up to individuals. And from there... As I've said before, there is no coming back. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Stay tuned. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. 
Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. We've been given a fair bit of attention in the last few weeks to the upcoming equalization referendum in Alberta coming up in just 11 days. And I, I would say just before we get into the discussion here, there's not been a lot of coverage of it at all, certainly in the national mainstream media. I know we had a federal election, but even so, a lot of the problems we've been talking about for years about Western alienation, a growing independence movement, a lot of these are, are going to be assessed in this referendum which is asking Albertans on October 18th whether they think equalization should be removed from the Constitution. Obviously, a, a bit of an uphill battle getting that adopted by the federal government, but still a very necessary discussion. And one I want to have with MLA Drew Barnes. He represents Cypress Medicine Hat. He's an independent, but previously sat in the UCP caucus and was also on the Fair Deal panel. And we've talked to him about that in the past. Drew, it's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Andrew. So I, let's start set the stage here for this referendum. How important is this? Is this kind of the be-all and end-all of the independence fight right now, or is it just one of many tools that should be looked at by Albertans? Well, thank you. It's very important. It's a necessary first step for, for over 80% of Albertans that want a fairer deal with Ottawa. Yes, for some of them, that fairer deal is independence, but, but for most, it's about the opportunity to have a fair deal, more, more economic freedom for their families and their communities. Hey, let's not forget that since 1965, Alberta has sent $650 billion to Ottawa. Most of it gets redistributed to Quebec and the Maritimes. And uh, equalization has become the buzzword for all of the inequities, whether it's you know unfair treatment in the Supreme Court, the House of Commons, the Senate, uh, and, and lack of resource movement. Albert, the average everyday Albertan is, is upset and realizes this is the first step. Is your sense that the Jason Kenney government is having this referendum to sort of check the box and say, yeah, we're listening, or, or do you think they actually want this to succeed? And, and the reason I ask that is because I have not heard a lot of advocacy from Premier Kenney on this referendum, and I've not really heard any encouragement from the government by and large telling people they should vote yes on it. Yeah, exactly. You know, Jason Kenney's been totally invisible. Once again, he's not meeting expectations. He's not getting behind his own referendum to vote yes to end equalization, take uh, equalization of Clause 36, subsection 2. Um, you know, maybe it's because his popularity is so low. In Alberta, Andrew, his popularity is less than even Justin Trudeau's. It's absolutely amazing. But it, but it's it's unexplainable how this is his referendum this was his question he campaigned on it and now he's totally invisible uh but uh you know I, I don't know his rationale for that but i do know what what albertans are saying to me in the coffee shop most of them are saying it's time to push for a fairer deal with ottawa it's time to push for an end to equalization it's time to push for pipelines and resource movement and and if we can't get that second they'll decide how they will hold ottawa accountable one of the concerns that I've heard from a lot of people that, that are on your team on this, they, they want equalization over, is that because there's not been a lot of discussion about this referendum, because a lot of Albertans don't know what's happening or, or don't necessarily know the stakes of it, it could have a very underwhelming turnout or it could fail. And, and I'm curious what the implications of that would be at the risk of, of putting the cart before the horse. If this doesn't have an overwhelming showing that is lining up with yes, what's that going to mean for the people that have been talking about these issues that you've just brought up? Well, we've seen a lot of left-wing academics, we've seen a lot of, of, of people that believe in big, big government say that this is the opportunity to come out and vote to keep equalization, 
just to send a strong signal against Jason Kenney and how so many Albertans feel he hasn't met expectations. But Andrew, I will say this, and I'm so grateful for all the volunteers uh, in the in the third party advertiser that have asked me to work with them, vote yes to end equalization. Uh, Canadian Taxpayers Federation has worked hard. Uh, Bill Buick and, and uh, another um, PAC has worked hard to get the message out. When I talk to Albertans, they know that this is a crucial first step to increase economic freedom, increase prosperity for Alberta families and communities. And Andrew, let's not forget it's good for Canada. When Alberta's strong, you know, we pay lots of taxes, we provide lots of jobs for all Canadians. This is a necessary step to, to make Alberta free and prosperous, and, and if Canada wants, bring them along with it. One of the things that's come up in the past with the Alberta independence discussions, and not secession, but asserting more independence and autonomy as a province, is that there are a number of things that provinces could do unilaterally, like uh, launch an Alberta police force, uh, launch an Alberta pension plan, basically recreate a lot of the Quebec sovereignty measures, but but in Alberta. And, and this is not something that depends on equalization as, as directly. And I, and I think that these are still things you'd agree should be pursued by Alberta, regardless of what happens on the 18th, right? Absolutely. Uh, Alberta having its own pension plan would be a $3 billion net benefit to Albertans. So, you know, seniors right now, they can't afford to pay their utilities. We could give them a, a decent uh, retirement uh, benefit, or we could have lower premiums for employees and employers. You know, either, either would be good. Our own police force, I mean, God bless the individual RCMP officers, but they're so overtaxed here with, with rural crime. Something something needs to be changed there. And Andrew, let's not forget that it's almost 21 years since the famous Alberta Agenda letter, uh, you know, called the Firewall Letter, penned by Stephen Harper, Ted Morton, Ken Busenkall, Andy Crooks and others, and nothing's been done. And, and it's time to gain this leverage with Ottawa that, um, you know, we want equality, we want fairness, or we, we want to, to look at things differently. And uh, yeah, absolutely, whatever the outcome of, of the vote yes and equalization referendum on October 18th, all those Alberta agenda items need to be pursued and implemented. Let's talk about equalization specifically, because the constitutional amendment being sought would basically take that section out of the Constitution that requires equalization. Constitutional changes are virtually impossible in the Canadian political system, especially because they would require buy-in from provinces who are receiving equalization. Changing the formula could be done by federal cabinet. I know Maxime Bernier has said, you know, he was in cabinet once when they changed the formula within the course of a three-hour meeting. So that's an easier hurdle but that nuance is not reflected in the, the referendum question. So what I would ask here is, would you settle for a change of the formula that was a bit fairer? Do you think it needs to go entirely? I, I believe it needs to go entirely. Um, again, first of all, because I mean, any political movement could change it and change it back to, you know, Alberta's disadvantage, which again is Canada's disadvantage. Um, and the fact that the Quebec Succession Act, the Clarity Act of 1998, set out a mechanism where Alberta has, Alberta, I'm sorry, where Ottawa has to deal with, with a, a strong yes vote to a clear question. Uh, and the fact that that's leaked to independence is kind of ironic in Quebec in 1998. Yeah, no, this is, there, there's other constitutional issues that have to be addressed, like the inequity in the Supreme Court, the inequity in the House of Commons, how, how ineffective uh, and useless the Senate is. Uh, so yeah, Albertans are telling me they want to push back. Let's, uh, let's, let's get equalization out of there so we can plan for the future and, and Alberta can be free and prosperous. 
What are what are the big? Uh, let me let me take a step back here and ask this a different way. Obviously, I know most small C conservatives are in favor of scrapping equalization. I also haven't heard too too much from Rachel Notley and the NDP on this, and I'm curious if this is a left right issue or if the the battle lines are a bit different. Oh, it's it's absolutely a left right issue. Uh, the NDP, you know, believes in big government, believes in wealth transfer. Uh, clearly, they. Uh, they believe in, in as much money coming out of Alberta as possible. Uh, that's why they were so devastating in their four years in government here, here in Alberta. Uh, but I would suggest that uh, Rachel Notley's looking at how low, low Jason Kenney's popularity is in Alberta when a lot of her people and, and, and public servants are saying, uh, hey, let's vote to keep equalization just to send Jason Kenney a message with how disappointed we are that he hasn't met expectations. Uh, she's probably just letting that play out. Uh, all the more reason, Andrew, that Albertans everywhere need to get out and vote yes to end equalization so Alberta families and communities can be stronger, so Canada can be stronger. So how does ending equalization make Canada stronger? Well, first of all, right now the equalization formula is so, it's, it's unclear, it's had unintended consequences. You know, it's clear that some provinces don't develop their resources, don't develop their revenue base, so they won't... Uh, affect their ability to collect equalization dollars from Alberta through Ottawa. So so a system where Alberta, first of all, could be stronger, so there'd be more job opportunities and more wealth created for all Canadians. And secondly, where the other provinces have the ability to develop their resource bases and their revenue bases stronger, which would be be good for all, all Canadian families and, and even for public services because it would create a, a greater tax base. Equalization has created a dissent of to create wealth, to create revenue, to make Canadian provinces strong. With one we always hear about is, is New Brunswick and Nova Scotia and Quebec not developing their shale gas resources, so they won't affect their equalization. Uh, it, it uh, you know, there, no doubt there's other examples of where their economies are being held back to continue the money flow from Ottawa. So, so you know, Canada has, has the people. You know, Canada has the commodities. Uh, you know, we, we we should be the freest, most prosperous place in the world. And of course, what we're seeing under under our current uh, federal leadership and current equalization formulas, we're seeing a slip, you know, into into the second tier. Uh, it's 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 embarrassing, and it, it's just a matter of the right policy to change. Yeah, you're very right. And I think this is the one takeaway that people, even outside of Alberta and outside of the have provinces, need to realize here, which you've touched on. This is not just a rainy day fund to help provinces going through tough times. This is a program that by design breeds dependency. And it takes away any incentive for a Quebec to develop its energy sector because they can replace that revenue more consistently and stably by profiting off of Alberta's energy sector. Particularly ironic given that Quebec uh, does not want pipelines in Alberta oil, but they, they want the checks that come from Alberta being able to sell its resources. Exactly. At the same time, the demand for, for oil and gas in the world was increasing, particularly before COVID. Uh, we're producing less and Canada is not energy self-sufficient. My goodness, if Line 5 closes, can you imagine the effects of that on, yeah. on Quebec and Ontario? It, it, it will be, be devastating. There, there, there's just so many things that, that have made it happen that, that have held us back to where, you know, like as an example, Andrew, from 2004 to 2014, when Alberta was really, really rolling, Ottawa didn't have to put anything into Alberta. We were paying lots of extra pension, lots of extra taxes. We were creating jobs for all Canadians. 
and and Ottawa had to pay less unemployment and less transfers in here because we were strong. The equalization program is based on provinces with different fiscal capacity being able to have the same approximate taxation levels so they can have the same quality of services. But Andrew, what's been happening is now all the fiscal capacity of all the provinces is narrowing as Alberta falls, as Alberta becomes less and less able to create wealth and, and create jobs for all of Canada. We've created a situation that's hurting 37 million Canadians, never mind the 4.4 million Albertans. So let's all vote yes to end it. And, and let's decide uh, the strengths of, of this confederation and, and, and let's work hard for more economic freedom. The equalization referendum in Alberta coming up on October 18th. And just to be uh, extra clear and crystal clear here, Drew, the good vote is the yes vote. The good vote is the yes vote. Vote yes to end equalization. Take it out of 36 subsection 2 of the Constitution. Thank you, Andrew. Yeah, so if someone tells me after I voted no to equalization, I mean, okay, well, no, 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 you mean, you mean yes, right? So always, <laughs> yeah. always have to be concerned when you're uh, in the negative and the affirmative on these things. Cypress Medicine Hat MLA, Drew Barnes. Always a pleasure, Drew. Thanks for coming on. Thank you very much. Have a good day. That does it for me for today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. This is The Andrew Lawton Show. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.